Uh, what I want to do, I know not everybody in this room is going to be able to be here throughout the whole week, so I wanted to give just a quick overview of the entire letter and then jump in and look at some of the specifics of this first chapter. So, so that's how we're going to approach it. So to begin with, um, th this letter is divided very neatly into three sections. And someone years ago wrote a commentary on Ephesians, and they entitled the commentary, The Wealth, The Walk, and The Warfare of the Christians. And, and, of the Christian. and, and that's really how the letter is divided. And so the, the first part, the first uh, three and a half chapters or so are, are focusing strictly on the wealth of the Christian. And, and the wealth meaning the riches that we have in Christ, all that God's done for us. The Bible is laid out in a very specific way. And what the Bible always does consistently is it first of all tells us what God has done and then it tells us what we are to do in response. Now, sometimes in the church, sometimes even preachers, we spend so much time telling people what they ought to be doing without ever having told them everything that God has done to empower them to do what they should be doing. But the, but the biblical writers didn't do that, and, and specifically the New Testament writers. So Paul is always making sure we first of all know the riches that we have in Christ, and then we go on to discuss our, our behavior, our walk. So the first three and a half chapters or so, as I said, are the wealth of the Christian, and then as we come into chapters four and five, then we're talking about the walk, how it is that we are to live our lives, how it is that we are to behave, and we're going to look in detail at that as we make our way through Ephesians this week. But then the final section of the letter talks to us about the warfare that we find ourselves in as God's people, because that's a reality. We're, we're in the midst of a spiritual battle. It's a battle that, that goes back to the very beginning of time, and it's a battle that will culminate when Christ himself comes and crushes all of his enemies and establishes his eternal kingdom. But we're intimately involved in that battle. We're, we're, we're in like a hand-to-hand -hand combat against these principalities, these powers, these uh, spiritual forces, the rulers of the darkness of this world. And so we will be looking at each one of these uh, different emphasis as we go through the letter throughout the week, the wealth, the walk, and the warfare of the Christian. But here we are this morning, and I'm here to uh, give us a look at the wealth of the Christian. And that's what Paul lays out here in the first chapter. And one other thing that I want you just to take note of, in the first chapter, he's, he's basically expounding to us our salvation, but in, in doing that, he also uh, informs us that our salvation is the work of the Father, 
the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we have all three persons, uh, of course, involved in the work of salvation. And Paul uh, just sort of breaks that down here where God the Father is the one who chose us. God is the one who, in a sense, you could say he came up with the plan. And then God the Son is the one who executed the plan. So we're chosen by the Father. We're redeemed by the Son. And then thirdly, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the one who applies all that the Father and the Son have uh, planned and done to us. And so we'll, we'll see that as we look at this first chapter. But we're going to concentrate uh, here at the first part on verses 3 through 14. And then we'll, we'll look at the remainder of the chapter, and we'll do that fairly briefly. Uh, that's the prayer that Paul prayed. But as we begin, I want you to notice he says this. He says that um, he, he begins with this praise be to God the Father, our God and Father, uh, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So blessed in the heavenly realms, what does that mean? Well, what that means is that we who are here on earth, we have blessings that are already ours and they are in the heavenly realm. It's it, because we're in Christ and later on in this letter, we're going to read that we're seated in the heavenly places in Christ. So Christ you remember, of course, he died. He rose again. He ascended back to heaven. He is there in heaven now waiting for that moment when the father sends him back to the earth to, to finalize everything, to establish uh, his kingdom. But we are in Christ. And because we're in Christ, it's as though we are already in heaven. It's as though we are already glorified. Now, practically, that isn't the case. But this is what I want us to understand. That is our position. You see, it's so important for us as Christians to realize that we have both a positional righteousness and a practical righteousness. We have both a positional holiness and a practical holiness. The, the positional righteousness and holiness is complete. You can't improve on it. It's the righteousness of Christ. And so God sees us in that positional state. So when God looks at you, he sees you as complete. He sees you as full. He sees you as righteous. He sees you as holy because you're positioned in Christ. But then, of course, there's the practical side, and this is where we see one another. And as we see ourselves or as we see one another, we realize that, well, we're, we're far from righteous sometimes. We're, we're far from really being holy. We recognize we're in a journey. But you see, if I fail to realize that I have a positional righteousness, I'm going to struggle and I'm going to be depressed and I'm going to feel defeated because if I'm just looking at my practical righteousness, I think, wow, am I ever even going to make it? Because I know better than anyone else my sinful tendencies, I know better than anyone else my shortcomings, I know better than anyone else my failures. So you see, it's so vitally important to know 
that we are seated already in the heavenly places in Christ. And so that's what Paul means when he speaks here of um, that we've been blessed in the heavenly realm. And so um, the, these are describing our, our standing before God. They're describing the way God sees us. And there's a number of things that Paul mentions here, and we're going to look at just a few. So first of all, I want you to notice that he says this in verse four. We're going to look at verse four, five, and verse seven. We'll come back to verse six later. So verse four, he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So this is the first spiritual blessing. Now, again, let me just emphasize this spiritual blessing. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. In this life, in this world, we might not enjoy all of the material blessings. Now, sometimes you hear preachers say that, you know, if you're really a good Christian, you should be materially blessed. You should be prospering. You should be wealthy. You should uh, never have any sickness or anything like that. That's a, that's a, a wrong idea. You don't get that from the New Testament. Um, in the Old Testament, there's a bit of that because God had a covenant with a people that was based around the land that they lived in, and uh, a material blessing was an indicator of their right relationship with God. But when you come to the New Testament, everything changes. And so someone has put it this way, prosperity was the promise of the Old Testament adversity is the promise of the New Testament. Now, of course, we like prosperity better, better than adversity. So a lot of times Christians are gravitating more toward uh, the, the prosperity thing and the material thing. But our blessings are primarily spiritual. Now, it doesn't mean that we won't have material blessings. It just means that that's not part of the agreement or the covenant that we have with God. We might be blessed materially. We might not. And in the New Testament record, you see uh, like the churches in Revelation that Jesus writes to, there's some churches that are rich and increased with goods. That's their material uh, experience. And then there's, there's others that are, are poor and deprived. And, but both are equally the church of God and, and the people of God. So just to remind us of the point now, as we look at each one of these things, these are the spiritual blessings that we have. So number one, going back to verse four, we've been chosen to be holy and blameless in his sight. God chose you to be holy and blameless in his sight. And so you can know this, that that's where you're going to end up. When you stand before God, which of course every one of us will do, right? Because life is temporary. We're all on a journey. We're, we're headed toward uh, eternity. And every single human being has uh, a date with God, if you will. Every single person is going to stand before God. And I'm either going to stand before God in my sin, or I'm going to stand before God in his righteousness. And there's nowhere else that anyone can stand. It's one or the other. Now, in Christ, this is the beauty of salvation. In Christ, we stand before God, and as we read here, holy and without blame. So when I lie down at night, 
And as I'm falling asleep and I'm thinking, you know, what if I don't wake up in the morning? Uh, what if I actually wake up in, in the presence of God? Now, I used to have that thought cross my mind occasionally, and that was a fearful thought. And it was fearful because I knew that I was anything but holy. I knew that I was anything but blameless. I knew that I, there were plenty of things that God could blame me for. And my life was full of unholiness. And so it was a fearful thing. Occasionally that thought would cross my mind. But having come to Christ and having understood what salvation is, I never have that experience. When I put my head on my pillow at night and think, well, if I uh, you know, died before I wake, that when I stand in the presence of God, I will stand there holy and blameless because I'm in Christ. And that's the position that I have. And you see, this, this is the kind of stuff that just takes the, the burden and the guilt, the, those things that we carry around with us. It just takes and alleviates all of that. And that's why it's so important. And one other thing here on this point, God chose us to this. This is where we're going to end up. God does not choose people for something and then um, give up on them part of the way through. So listen, if you've been chosen, if you're in Christ, and how do you know if you're chosen? Well, you know that you're chosen because you've responded to his invitation. Anyone who responds to the invitation to receive God's gift is chosen. And if you're chosen, this is what you're chosen to. You're chosen to be holy and blameless. God chose you to that. He's going to get you to that. You can have that confidence. The second thing that we read in verse 5 is that he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Christ. Now, this, this word predestined, chosen, they're similar words. And these are troubling words for some people. And they're troubling understandably, because I think oftentimes they're misunderstood. Just know this. We don't have time to go into all the details of this, but just know this. When the Bible speaks of choosing or predestining, it never speaks of anyone except the believer. See, some people think that God just predestined some people to go to heaven and he predestined other people to go to hell. And that's just the way it is. I don't think the Bible teaches that. Because predestination always has a reference to the people of God. And really, we're being predestined, or we've been predestined, ultimately, to be made like Jesus. In Romans chapter 8, that's what, that's what we're told there, that we've been predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son. And so here, we pre, we've been predestined uh, for adoption to sonship. Now, some translations here read... Um, We've been predestined to be adopted as children. And children is really not the right translation here. Because sonship means something very specifically. And that's why it's sonship versus children. Some places children is right. And sonship is not a slight against daughtership or, or women. But sonship spoke of something very specific in that culture. And Sonship spoke of being the heir of the father. And so what this is telling us is that we've been predestined to become the heirs of God. 
You see, in Roman society, when a, when a wealthy man would adopt a son, he would adopt him for the very purpose of uh, passing on his wealth to him. He, he would adopt him as specifically as his heir. That's what adoption to sonship meant. It meant not that you're just going to join a family and have a place at the table. It meant that you're going to inherit everything in the end. And so God has adopted us in the sense that he has made us the heirs of all of his riches and wealth. And again, Paul says a similar thing in Romans. He says that we are joint heirs with Christ. So Christ owns everything. Everything there is belongs to Christ. It was created by him. It was redeemed by him. It was given to him by the father. And guess what? He's giving it to us. He's sharing it with us. So, so part of the riches, part of the wealth that we have is this fact that we are the heirs of God. So both of these things have to do with what the father has done. But now I want you to look with me at verse seven. And here's where we see the work of the son in him. We have redemption through his blood. So how did this all come about for us? It came about for us through the redemptive work of Jesus. Now, the, the word redeem means to buy something back. Another similar word that we find in our English translation is ransom. Maybe you remember reading in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus says the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom. What does that mean? A ransom is you're going to pay a price to set somebody free. Well, that's what Jesus did. See, he redeemed us and the cost of redemption was his blood. And what did he redeem us from? He set us free from the power of sin and death and the devil. He bought us out of the, the, the prison cell and made us the children of God. So you see, we're no longer under bondage to sin. We're no longer in bondage to death. We are now the heirs of life because of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I mean, think of that for a moment. And, and the amazing thing is that as Paul tells us in Romans five, God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then Paul goes on to talk about how uh, unusual it, it would be for someone to die for someone else. He says in certain extraordinary cases, people do die for others, but you know, they, they die for a friend. They might die for a family member, but here's the amazing thing God did when we were enemies, he died for us. He sent his son. He gave his son to die for us. So this is the depth of God's love. So we've been redeemed. We've been bought out of the slave market of sin. And along with that redemption, we have the forgiveness of sins. We have the forgiveness of sins. Now, there used to be a time when people lived under the weight and the guilt of sin. They, they, they understood that they were sinners and um, they, they would oftentimes seek for deliverance from that. And, and that would lead people to seek out the savior because the burden of sin was crushing them. Now, 
it's not so much that people think that way today. The problems are the same, but they don't realize what the problem is connected to. See, how many people are living under the burden of guilt? How many people are trying to free themselves from that sense of failure? And, and how many people, this is what's driving their lives. And this is, in some cases, what's driving them crazy. But because they've discarded God, they think, well, it's a psychological matter. Or it's just a self-improvement matter. Or it's an identity matter. Or it's something like that. Well, really, what it is, it's the fact that we've sinned against God, that we are guilty, that we are living under the weight and the guilt of that sin. But here's the wonderful thing. Jesus has provided for us the forgiveness of sins. Now, I've been a Christian a long time now. I've been a Christian twice as long as I wasn't a Christian. So I became a Christian when I was about 20. And um, so I'm a little older than that now. Um, but I, but you know, so I'm, I'm in a sense, I'm very far removed from that the heavy guilt that I bore before I became a Christian. Now I still sin, obviously, and I feel guilty at times. And I thank God that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses me from all sin. But occasionally I look back and I remember where I used to be. And I remember the weight uh, of the guilt of sin that was on me. And I remember that burden. And I remember that, that feeling of needing somehow to be freed from this. And this is what happens. We have the forgiveness of sin. God forgives our sin. Have you ever, take it out of the realm of sin for a moment. Have you ever done anything, um, not, not like criminally, like really bad, but maybe you've broken the law somehow and you, you seem to have got away with it, but you, you're still afraid that, that it's somehow going to catch up with you. And, and you just go around in life bearing that burden. Now, I'll tell you a quick story. Years and years and years ago, my father-in-law, a man named Chuck Smith, my wife's dad, uh, who is also a very well-known pastor, um, he, he was just a great father. And he would often come over to our house and he would do all kinds of little things for us. You know, he would fix our fence or he would do, do something... Um, uh, you know, paint something or do some gardening. Well, he wanted uh, us to have a nice, tidy garden. And so he bought me this really um, just this amazing lawnmower. And he brought it over and he was really excited, you know, that this was a gift and he wanted me to keep my lawn nice and mowed. And so he gave me the lawnmower and it was very kind, and I was very thankful for it. Well, one day, he was over visiting, and his car was parked out on the side of the road, and I was mowing this little patch of grass just out in front of our house. And I wasn't paying attention, and as I was pushing the mower along, there was part of the mower that stuck out. There was a metal edge that stuck out. And as I was going by, you know the lawnmower is really loud, right? It was electric. I mean, it was... Uh, gasoline powered. So it was really loud. I couldn't hear anything. But as I'm going along, I'm peeling all the paint off the side of his car with a lawnmower, just putting the biggest scratch from one end to the other. And when I realized what I had done, I just felt 
so horrible. Oh, I cannot believe this. But I also thought, I can't tell him. I, I can't tell him that I did this. Because after all, what kind of an idiot son-in-law would I be if my great father-in-law who gave me this wonderful lawnmower, if I used it to scratch his car? So <coughs> I decided to conceal my sin. And um, so he discovered the scratch on his car and he brought it to the attention of my wife. And she said, oh, honey, my dad, his car is all scratched up. I wonder what happened. I'm like, oh, I don't know. That's too bad that his car got scratched. Wow, that is a bad scratch. That's a really bad scratch. And this literally went on for like six weeks. And it got to the point where my father-in-law started thinking, somebody hates me. Somebody is out to get me. And then that's why my car's scratched up. And, you know, he would just keep bringing it up over and over again. And every time he'd bring it up, I just sort of like walk out of the room, you know, like. And so one day, the, the guilt, it just got too heavy for me. And so I'm talking to Cheryl on the phone and she says, yeah, I was talking to my dad again today. And, you know, he is just so concerned that somebody hates him. He just doesn't understand why anybody would scratch his car. And I could no longer contain it. I just shouted out, I scratched his car. And she's like, what? You scratched my dad's car? What's the matter with you? I said, honey, no, I didn't mean to do it. And I explained to her the whole story about the lawnmower and everything. And so she said, well, I'm going to call my dad and tell him right now. And I thought, okay, time for the consequences. And she called him. And these were his exact words. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Somebody doesn't hate me. There's not somebody out to get me. My idiot son-in-law did this. So that's fine. I can, I can forgive him. But I want to tell you that the guilt, the burden that I carried around for those six weeks, it was crushing. It was almost intolerable. And, and there came that point where I just had to let it out. Now, I mean, that's a, a minor infraction, right? But when we're talking about the forgiveness of sins, we're talking about very serious things. We're talking about horrific things. We're talking about things that people go to prison for. We're talking about things that people uh, in some countries are executed for. We're talking about all of the gross, horrible, wicked things that people do, that human beings do. Guess what? All of that is forgivable. And when a person comes to Christ, their sins are forgiven. They're washed away. That, that is all erased from their life. And if anyone is in Christ, they become a new creation. Old things pass away and everything becomes new. That's part of the riches that we have in Christ Jesus. You know, I have friends who, as a matter of fact, a few weeks ago, I was visiting a place and um, a friend of mine was there and he just got this property and he works with ex-prison people and gang people and drug people. And he's setting up a rehabilitation center. So he takes me to the rehab. He wants to show me the property. So I'm driving out with him to the property. And as I'm driving out, I'm looking at him, talking to him. And I'm also thinking in my mind, 
This man was a murderer. This man murdered another man in a drug deal and spent years in prison and was released on good behavior, became a Christian, and now he's serving Jesus. And I'm driving alone with him out into the woods to look at this land. And I had no fear because I know he's redeemed. But that's the kind of redemption we're talking about. That's what we're talking about with the forgiveness of sins. And listen, we do have real sins and they must be forgiven because if they're not forgiven, then we have to answer for them. And the answer is judgment. But that's what Jesus came to do. He came to take the judgment for us. That's what he did. And so he redeemed us and he provided us with the forgiveness of sin. But then there's another thing that we're told to her. And I'll just touch on this one really quickly. Another one of the spiritual blessings is that we've been made or it's been made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purchased in Christ. Verse nine. Now, verse 10 to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. We have been given the knowledge of God's will as his people. And so we know something that nobody else knows. We know the future. We know the future. We know where the world is headed. And as crazy as the world gets, it's been crazy and it's crazy now and it's going to get crazier, but it has a culminating moment and that will be in the return of Jesus to the earth to bring heaven and earth into subjection to God. And, and God has given us that information. You know, so many people want to know the future, right? I mean, they go to fortune tellers, they go to psychics, uh, they're always they're reading the horoscope, you know, they're trying to figure out what's the future, what's the future hold? Well, listen, God's told us the future. He told us that heaven and earth are going to be brought together under the authority of Jesus. Now, a lot of other things are going to happen between now and then, but as, they, as those things unfold, we can look beyond all of that insanity and we could say, well, look, I know the end of the story and I know that it's all going to be okay. It's all going to be good. And, and you know, that gives a person peace. If you're worried about the future, if you have anxiety over the future and it's understandable that we would, that, that's, that's, that, that can drive you crazy. That's, that's stressful. But if you just know that I know that it's all going to work out because God has revealed the mystery of his will. Christ is going to come again. That just gives us uh, the ability to rest in the midst of the madness. So that's another one of the spiritual blessings. And then the final one is in verse uh, 13 and 14 here. And this is what he says. Now we've looked at the father choosing, the son redeeming, and now verse 13 um, he says that you were included in Christ when you heard the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, here it is, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So the father chooses us, the son redeems us, and the Holy Spirit seals us. Now, the seal is the mark of ownership. That's what a seal was in the ancient world. When a person would purchase something, they would stamp their seal on it and it belonged to them and it was untouchable. 
Nobody else could touch it at that point. It was the possession of the person whose seal was upon it. And oftentimes what they would do is they would, like we do today, you know, you make a down payment on something. So you're going to purchase something, but you don't maybe have all of the, the financing to, uh, to do it right now, but you want it. You want to secure it as your own. So you put a down payment and then it becomes yours at the down payment. And when you, um, of course, pay it off, then you collect it and bring it to yourself. So what God has done is he stamped his seal upon you and me. We are his possession. You belong to him. And one day he's going to bring you and me into the full realization of that, the full experience of that. But until then, he's given us a taste through the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the, the down payment. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee. Actually, the, the, the Greek word that's used here is the word Arabon. And in modern Greek, that word, in, in ancient Greek, it meant more like a pledge. And it, did, it actually meant a pledge. In modern Greek, they use it to refer to an engagement ring. So in, in modern Greek, uh, an Arabon is an engagement ring. What does an engagement ring say? It says to the bride, uh, you are going to be my wife. And here's my pledge. I'm giving you this ring. And, I, and I'm through giving you this ring. I'm showing you that I'm, I'm pledging myself to fulfill uh, this promise to you. Now, of course, in human terms, we know that you could change your mind and take the ring back at a certain point, or she could change her mind and throw the ring away. Um, but that's where the analogy of the engagement ring breaks down, because it's more than an engagement ring. It's a pledge that God has made, and he's given us already the Holy Spirit. So we now have tasted We've experienced God. And that's what happens, right? When you become a Christian in the biblical sense, you have an experience with the Holy Spirit. God puts his seal on you and you know that you're his. How do you know? You just know. And again, Paul has a parallel statement in Romans 8 that the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And it's that Holy Spirit that is the pledge to you that you belong to God right now and you belong to God forever. So you see, this is the, the wealth that we have in Christ. And we need to know this because if we don't know this, we can't function the way we're supposed to function. We can't live the way we're supposed to live. We're not going to behave the way we are supposed to behave. And we're certainly not going to be able to fight in this spiritual battle that we're in. So we have to be rooted and grounded and established in these truths. And that's why Paul goes on in the remainder of the chapter. And having said all of this, he basically says, and now let me pray for you. Because he realizes these things are lofty. These things are, um, these are heavy, wonderful spiritual realities that sometimes we're just not going to get it because of our own spiritual dullness. We need the help of God to 
embrace and understand these things. And so he says in um, the next verses here, in verse 16, he says, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And then he says this, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And listen, I'm praying that for you. And let's pray that for each other. You see, we need God to give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation. This is more than just information to go into the brain. This, we need the spirit of God to enlighten us. And that's, then he goes on and he says, uh, secondly, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. So you see, Paul realizes these are spiritual things. We need spiritual help in order to lay hold of all of these great realities so that the eyes of our understanding or the, the translation here, which is accurate, the eyes of our heart, we need the Holy Spirit to bring these things to us so that we would know three things. Number one, uh, that we would know what is the hope of his calling. This is what Paul's praying. He says, I, I am praying that, that you'll get, be given the spirit of wisdom revelation so you can know the hope to which you were called. So that you would know the, the greatness, the, the magnificence, the glory that awaits us. That is what God has called us to. And then he says that you would know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. So that you would know the greatness of what God's called you to first. Secondly, that you would know, to simplify it, what a treasure you are to God. You are God's inheritance. I mean, think about that. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The universe is the Lord's and everything in it. The visible, the invisible, everything belongs to God. But you are his inheritance. We are his inheritance. The church, his people. We are, we are the treasure. God values us as his most prized possession. That's amazing. And when you realize how loved you are by God, how precious you are to God, how valuable you are to God, that changes your life. That revolutionizes your life. And that's what Paul's praying. And then the third and the final thing he says is that you would know the exceeding greatness or the incomparably great power toward us who believe the power that's the same power as the mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Verse 21, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come that you would know the hope of his calling, the riches of his glorious inheritance in you, the saints, and the exceeding greatness of his power that works in you. It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And that's Paul's prayer. I want you to know these things. I want you to experience these things. And listen, the more we meditate on these things, 
the more we give ourselves over to these things. Here's what you will find as you take your Bible and as you open it up and as you're, in a sense, you're mining through the, the uh, you know, you're looking for the gold, the silver, the nuggets. As you're doing that, God is revealing more and more of these great spiritual truths to you. And this is establishing you more and more firmly in Christ and in life. You're positionally already there, but God wants to work that out practically. He wants to work out all of that in our lives while we're here in the world. And so for some today, some of, some of us today, we, we just need the Holy Spirit to bring this revelation to us. And, and we want to pray for that. But there's one final thing I want to say, and this takes us back to verse six. I told you that we would come back to verse six. Verse six, when we're talking about the blessings that we have in Christ, in verse six, it says here in this translation, it says, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Now, let me give you another, a couple of other translations. Another translation says, um, to the praise uh, of his glorious grace by which he has highly favored us in the one he loves. So he's highly favored us in the one he loves. There's, there's a word here, a Greek word that's only used one other time in the New Testament. And it's used in reference to Mary when Gabriel comes to her and he says to her, hail, highly favored one. It's the same word here. So you could easily literally translate it highly favored one. But there's another way it's translated as well in the older version. And I think this is the best way. The other way is that through the praise, to the praise of the glory of his grace, he has made us accepted in the beloved. That's the best translation in my opinion, because that is the gospel right there. The gospel is this. We are by nature unacceptable to God because of our sin. How do we get acceptance with God? How does that happen? It happens through Jesus. And it's through him that he has made us accepted. We are accepted in the beloved. And I want to close with this. This is what every single one of us need to know. That when God looks at you who have received his son, he sees you in Christ. And like I began with, positionally, how does he see you? He sees you holy and blameless. He sees you perfect. You can't even add to that. How could you add to the perfection of Christ? You can't. Know this. We're not accepted by God on the basis of our own righteousness or our own goodness, or our own good works, none of that could grant us acceptance with God. That excludes us from God because none of us are good enough. But we have full and complete and total acceptance with God in the beloved. And so this is the question that some have to ask. Am I in the beloved? And this term that Paul uses over and over again, it's going to appear all the way through this letter. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And this is the, the reality. Human beings, all people were in one or two places. We're either in Christ 
or we're outside of Christ. If we're outside of Christ, we're in sin and death and darkness and judgment will eventually come. But if we're in Christ, we're accepted in him totally and completely. We're going to stand before God holy and without blame. And he's put the seal of his spirit upon us to guarantee that that indeed will be the case. And so again, being in Christ, how do I get in Christ? I get in Christ by asking Christ to come into me. Because as many as would receive him, to them, he gives the power, the right, and the authority to become the sons and the daughters of God. That's how I get in Christ. I receive him. And if you haven't done that today, I really pray that before this week is over, I pray that that would happen. And I know that there are some of you sitting out here today that you came to this festival you know, two years ago, five years ago, 12 years ago, and you came as a person who was outside of Christ, but you are now in Christ, and you know that reality. But the, for those of you that are not there yet, the invitation is wide open, and he bids you to come to receive him. So Lord, thank you for your amazing grace, your great love. Lord, these, these riches in Christ that we're talking about here, Lord, we need the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, come and grant to us wisdom and revelation so that we can know you better, that we can know these things. Lord, enlighten our hearts. Open the eyes of our heart, Lord, that we might know these things experientially. Lord, that we might sense the seal of the Spirit of God upon our lives.